0: As promised, a special episode dedicated to the announcing announcement of the 2020 Pulitzer Prizes uh, in many things. Really, we're not going to go through detail of the reporting and music and everything. We're going to stick with the the letters once, you know, fiction, nonfiction, and poetry too. We'll talk about a little bit, even though I scarcely imagine either of us have much to say about the poetry. Winner <laughs> this another year but worth mentioning for sure. um And Rebecca, you watched the live stream of the Pulitzer, which I want to hear about too. Do yeah. I have that right? Yeah, yeah,
2: you do. It's the first time I've paid attention to the Pulitzer announcement live. I think since we've done Book Riot.
0: Maybe I've got it wrong, but I think this might be the ter- first time they actually live stream streamed it. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. About I don't.
2: That. I don't know. There were. It, a few years where they were getting announced on Twitter right, and presumably in other venues at the same time, I think. But um, I would catch up later. Like it was never, this has never been something that I've had on my calendar as like at three o'clock on this day, I need to see right as it's announced who is winning. Um, but I watched the live stream yesterday. Yep.
0: It's funny to think of the format of the three major literary awards that we pay attention to would even dedicate a whole show to maybe like the National Book Award, this and the Nobel Prize, because each of them have this announcement strategy that is very so wildly. So this one historically has been a tweet and a press release, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this year it was a live stream. The The Nobel Prize is like some Swedish dude comes out from behind a gold door to a <laughs> gaggle of reporters and says a few words that you need to be translated and then steps back in. Like Kind of like Willy Wonka coming out of the factory and then walking back in. And the National Book Award has designs on being like the Oscars for books. And so it goes completely the other direction. Uh, And so I feel like none of them are the right thing. Not that I know what the right thing, but none of these feel like an event. Like I don't even know what you would do to make sense, but all of them feel wrong.
2: Yeah, I feel like the National Book Award gets it the closest, like because there's at least some pomp and circumstance. Like, this is to win a major mm-hmm. book award is a big deal. It's like the, one of the highest accomplishments, if not right. the highest accomplishment in your field. And it feels like, for whatever a person's field is, that moment of getting recognition by your peers or the critics or, you know, your greater artistic community should come with some confetti throwing. So, mm-hmm. like, I haven't been to the National Book Awards, but it is a big dinner. I think it's like the, the Golden Globes equivalent, you know, like there's a big dinner round tables and booze, there's a host, there's a, it's like, yeah, round tables and booze. It's a whole thing. Like just announcing it on Twitter and a press release, it seems just too anti um i do love the weirdness of the nobel so that one's fine (laughs) with me but i feel like the pulitzers like they're they could you know do some trumpeting drop some balloons uh and so it was interesting that at least this year there was like a live thing you could tune into to see and um Hmm. You know, I guess they couldn't do like the full live thing without spoiling who the winners were going to be for them. But it was fun to watch like one, like Colson Whitehead, who won the um, Pulitzer for fiction, followed up the announcement by Instagramming a photo of himself like out on the street in New York wearing a mask and a Misfits t-shirt. And That's very like, oh, Colson cool. Whitehead. There he yeah. is. Like, yeah. You know, it really is. And like maybe, you know, they could have zoomed him in or had everyone on screen or something. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was interesting. And I think I w- if I had to pick, I would go with the National Book Awards format just because it's a, it, it's an actual thing that occurs.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... um, all right. Well, let's do a sponsor real quick. Then we'll actually get into who won what uh, when we come back.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips. So Louise Manson is the newest student at Highfield Manor, Dublin's most exclusive private school. Behind its granite walls are high arched alcoves and oak lined library. And the dark secret Lou has come to expose. So Lou's working class status makes her the consummate outsider. That is until she is befriended by some of her beautiful and wealthy classmates. But after Lou attempts to bring the school's secret to light, her time at Highfield ends with a lifeless body sprawled at her feet. Then 30 years later, Lou gets a shocking phone call. A high profile lawyer is bringing a lawsuit against the school and he needs Lou to testify. Lou will have to confront her past and discover once and for all what really happened at Highfield. Powerful and compelling When We Were Silent is a thrilling story of exploitation, privilege and retribution with themes of revenge, love, power and secrets. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of When We Were Silent by Fiona McPhillips for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Team. In a world where the children of the gods inherit their powers, a descendant of the Greek fates must solve a series of impossible murders to save her sisters, her soulmate, and her city. Descendants of the fates are always born in threes. There's one to weave, one to draw, and one to cut the threads that connect people to the things they love and to life itself. And the Aura sisters are no exceptions. There is Eo, the youngest, who uses her fate-born abilities as a private investigator. But her latest job leads her to a horrific discovery. Somebody is abducting women and setting the results wraiths loose in the city to kill. Now the second book in the series, Hearts That Cut, will be on sale June 18th, 2024. This is a must read for all Greek mythology and fantasy fans. This is Dripping with Atmosphere, Edge with Danger. Threads That Bind weaves together a gorgeous dark tapestry of mystery, faded romance, and modern myth. You won't be able to put this one down and that comes from Alexandra Bracken, New York Times best selling author of Lore. So make sure to pick up Threads That by Kitsa Hatsapolu. And thanks again to Penguin Teen for sponsoring this episode.
0: Um, As Rebecca said, the top line is, well, for us, for our purposes, um, that (laughs) Colson White had won um, his second Pulitzer. Um, The first was for Underground Railroad, but this one for the Nickel Boys. As I'm not sure that I, we predicted this as so much as hoped for it. Yeah, But maybe I predicted it. I I don't know. (laughs) But I'm I'm taking credit for knowing things. That's 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 I mean I mean I'm take, I'm putting a pile of knowing things chips into my account yeah, about I, this. Is that fair? Is that I fair? I think
2: I think it's fair. I was yeah. not pulling for anything else. Um mm-hmm. and I think the place that I had landed was th- there were other great novels last year. I could have gotten behind this one or on earth were briefly gorgeous by right. Ocean Vuong winning. Right. Um but I didn't find myself like really hoping for any others it was I think it would have been hard to understand this being awarded to anything but those two novels from last year in my humble opinion
0: yeah we'll talk about that in the middle I mean I haven't talked much about Ben Lerner on this show for reasons I'll get into in a minute um but the Topeka School was one of the finalists for fiction and then Anne Patchett's The Dutch House which I used to be more of an Anne Patchett person um that i am this day these Mm. days this book sold very well very well regarded narrated by tom hanks because of twitter internet friendship which we talked about before interesting group of finalists i mean of note the pulitzer hasn't been in fiction hasn't been awarded to a woman since 2014 which isn't great no um on the other hand, well, there is no really other hand for the Pulitzer, <laughs> but the the wider awarding world has been much more egalitarian in that regard, so the Pulitzer kind of gets lost in that. I don't know if we're doing, I'm not sure where we are right now with sort of accounting for inclusion in that way. Is it an individual award situation across the board? The National Book Award has been given to a woman, I think, the last four years in a row. So do we throw it in with her? Does it? I don't know. It's something that's worth noting Mm -hmm. um, in this particular case. Um, Did you read either the Topeka School or or Dutch House?
2: I didn't. The Topeka School just didn't quite make it on my radar I'm interested now though that I've been reading about it this morning Um, and the Dutch House is I think one of those also where like I used to be a bigger Ann Patchett Mm -hmm. fan and I just sort of stopped paying attention and then I heard that the Dutch House was like a rich people problems novel and I do love a rich people problems novel and I will probably read that at some point but I was surprised to see uh, to see that make it into me too the discussion of presumably like the top three best or most important books of Mm -hmm. the year
0: um, let's talk about the Nickel Boys for a minute. Um, it's shorter than, it's, it's a pretty short book, which mm-hmm. is interesting. It's, it's not only short, but a smaller format than you get from a lot of, um, hard these days. It came out pretty quick after the Underground Railroad for, for the way literary novels tend to work in Whitehead himself. He tends to be pretty regular, but it did come out like, I just think two years after Underground Railroad. Maybe I have this. Um, On Backward It's this story It's it's historical fiction um, And it's non-fabulous Magical realism Like the Underground Railroad It doesn't It takes real accounts uh, A real story of This This correctional facility Slash jail Slash school um, Presented in different ways in the novel Depending on Mm -hmm. who's talking about it um, Where the main character Is wrongly sent to it you know for something he didn't do a young black man um in the 50s i think it is i actually don't have the time right i think it's
2: head. the i googled it's the 60s in, 60s, uh, 60s in tallahassee florida so you're in tallahassee the, you know jim crow
0: yeah jim crow florida and his experience and the other nickel boys uh, the titular nickel boys these these kids young men boys you know right on that cusp where they could be boys could be men they get punished like men um But also then called Boy, you know, the classic Mm -hmm. um, double standard there. And it's powerful. It's horrifying. It's very spare. Um, It doesn't do the thing Whitehead has been doing of late of crossing mixing genres. Maybe touches horror a little bit. Like there's this room that they get sent to for punishment that has a horror film quality to it. But outside of that, it's pretty straight historical fiction in a way we haven't really seen him do since ever, to my You know, I'm trying to run yeah. through the Whitehead backlist. I, I guess maybe Sag Harbor, um, which is historical fiction about uh, a black vacation community in, in Long Island. I guess that would be the most, that would be his other historical fiction, which is completely different, though. Also mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, I thought the book was a real achievement of letting the story speak for itself. I think he realized maybe that he didn't need to put any zombie on it, you know, for lack of a better (laughs) term um, and, and, and do the story as best he could. And a continuing exploration of how many clubs are in Whitehead's bag, I think Mm -hmm. is one thing I took from the Nickel Boys. What was your sense of it?
2: Much the same as that. It is so much smaller, both in like length and the size of the book, as you were saying, I, I, And I think it's deceptively small in that sense that like I picked it up. I remember on a, I think like a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning, I was like, let me see what this new Colson Whitehead is about. And I sat there for hours until I was done. Just Mm -hmm. like, well, this is my life today. I'm reading this book. It's incredible. And I, think he was absolutely right and just to echo you in it's more it's much more restrained it's quieter mm-hmm. there are there's like no bells and whistles here because a story like this doesn't need bells and whistles and not only that it wouldn't benefit from them yeah. and i don't think so much that it ventures into a horror as it just shines a light by telling it it just he just tells it as it is for these right. characters um based on this real place that like it's torture they go into this room and they are tortured um or they're killed and you know buried in a field in the back of the property and spoilers abound sorry for the nickel boys now that we're here um,
0: yeah we haven't spo- There, like there's a there's <laughs> a there's a story of these uh, especially a couple of characters that we follow that we'll, we won't touch what yeah. actually happens to them in particular. Um, I think we're not really beyond the bounds of like a book review at this point. Yeah. Like, this is and, what this and also
2: is. like, it's a real place that yeah. you can Google and find out what they did there. Um, but it's interesting. I think that you were feeling that horror genre capacity. Cause like mm-hmm. to my mind, a horror book has like some fantastic elements to it. Like it's the inverse of a fantasy or a daydream. It's like, it's a nightmare right. um, where you might be inventing things and there's nothing invented here. Mm-hmm. It's all drawn from reality and drawn from horrific truth. Um, and that just letting it stand by itself, I think is incredibly powerful yeah. And to have done this right, it was 2017 when he won for the Underground Railroad, and to have done this two years later is uh,
0: amazing.
2: I don't even know how to guess about what happens next in Colson Whitehead's Whitehead's literary career. Like,
0: I, I don't know. It feels like he could do anything. <laughs> yeah, like it does. I, I guess the thing we haven't seen that's possible, like uh, in the realm of possibility, and this maybe bridges into the Ben Lerner for a minute is. Will, or like some of our other favorites like the Marilyn Robinson is mm-hmm. like a multi novel arc like a multi novel sort of world of some kind or a place that's yeah. not something we've seen him do that he could he, he could does he want to does he want to venture into the realm of sort of high fantasy something like that um mm-hmm. he's done speculative fiction but he hasn't done high fantasy or or a more future like a future forward science fiction sort of thing he tends to look backward um in the speculative yeah. fiction realm except for his own one which is sort of present day, uh, you know, alternate alternate present more than anything. Um, it's so hard to say. It is interesting to see him turn towards unknown, under-known historical fiction, um, much like Morrison did with Beloved when he wrote about his, his the book, The Underground Rivers is about mm. slavery. The fantastical element, I think, in, to some degree is a way of reframing the story in a way that looks at it differently to get us out of our familiar understanding, our sort of ready-made understanding of, like, this—you know, slavery was this or it was like this—and so, like, Water Dancer is doing a similar thing of, like, right. using a fantastical element to look at it anew. But if you are looking at something for the first time, or you understand that most people reading the book are going to be reading it for the first time, you just sort of just the facts, ma'am, does a lot you know, with his mm-hmm. considerable stylistic gifts on top of it, of course but i don't think you need to go and do anything really more complicated than tell the truth and tell it straight as as much as you can um imbue it with humanity uh and it worked um i could see him continuing in that vein i can see how doing it once if you read the a little bit about what he said about it it seems to like it seemed to him that he was very personally affected by learning this story mm-hmm. um and you know a lot of it came out of wanting to do it came out of wanting to tell the story of these nickel boys like these are these are kids and, and young men that lived and died and were killed and buried and erased and this moment of it's a, it's a it's a kind of story of resurrection in a way uh, a literary resurrection yeah. to bring the story to light so that you know dummies like me are, are thinking about it and talking about it um so it has a sociological element that transcends i think <laughs> just a telling, writing a novel about a thing that you can you know sell books about and get people interested in so i wonder if that might continue as well
2: yeah i think that's an interesting angle for it because this is the kind of story that like if you hear the broad strokes of it there's a school in the south it's a you know like reformatory Mm -hmm. young black men are sent there they're tortured and punished and this some of them are sent there wrongfully from having not done anything you know it's impossible to get out. Basically nobody who's familiar with American history would doubt that these places existed. (laughs) You know, like it's very believable that many of these places existed, but telling a particular story that's grounded in not just grounded in reality, but in all of the, like the rich detail Mm. that he creates and the interior experience of these characters drawn Mm. from real life accounts of people who lived there does make it real in a new way. And I think your point about bringing magical realism to the Underground Railroad, you're right, was intended to do the same thing, that that's a story we already are familiar Mm -hmm. with. We know about slavery, we know about the Underground Railroad, how do you make it feel new? Or how do you sort of wake people back up to it? Right? Yeah. But and that's by Shaking it up and bringing something unexpected like this is unexpected. There's some magic here. You actually don't know what's about Mm -hmm. to happen. You think you do, but you don't know. And for something like this, it's a story that we didn't know. There's nothing I think surprising about what happens in this place it's disappointingly believable and predictable um, and you know probably dozens if not hundreds of other institutions like this existed Mm
1: -hmm. but like
2: this here he's saying here is what happened to this one person in this one place right and it lets you imagine the experiences of the hundreds or thousands of other young men that experienced it as well
0: yeah so um Again, I'm a huge fan. You know, both you and I have Mm -hmm. said in a previous show that he's our draft pick, number one overall draft pick for, if there is a mantle for the the greatest living American novelist, if that's something anyone cares about, I'd throw my stock um, behind Whitehead. And, um, you know, it's hard hard even now to, um, I guess, put him in the context of American literary history um, because he's still relatively young. I mean that's another thing. This isn't. He's not in his seventies. He's yeah. got six, eight, ten more novels in him. So to reach the mountaintop twice in the form of a Pulitzer, which is really the American, you know, stamp of approval from the literary community. Where do you go from here? How do you spend that capital? I think is an interesting question. Like, was he think? Does he think about it in those terms at mm. all? Um, we know, I don't know where the production is on this, especially in the moment we are in, where Barry Jenkins is supposedly or was going to adapt the Underground Railroad into a multi-part series, which I think would be fascinating. Whitehead himself doesn't seem interested in, say, doing the ta Coats thing of writing Black Panther or getting into TV or movies or something else like that. I could certainly understand if he wanted to. Selfishly, I hope he doesn't. Same. I think if you're the... I think for me, I want White... He's the... I don't know there's a book I look forward more I mean even Jack Aside, the Marilyn Robinson, mm-hmm. I, I joke about that. But if you ask me to say if I get one new novel by someone, I, I'm still picking Whitehead, even knowing what the, the, the thing is. So I want that to be the thing. Like if you're the best at making the thing, keep making that thing, though I can understand now that maybe there are new worlds to explore and conquer and new mediums that he might explore. Um but boy I yeah, the achievement is such that um I hope he continues to apply his trade in the way that I (laughs)
2: want, I guess is what I'm saying. No, Um, I totally agree. Like he's, he does something different with every novel and it's unexpected and unpredictable. And like, we're sitting here being like, what's it going to be next? And you could tell me literally anything. And I'd be like, okay, I believe you that Colson Whitehead is doing that and doing it well. Mm -hmm. And that he is so young still and relatively early in his career is so promising and also like there's plenty time if plenty he wants time. to write you know yeah, like if he time. wants to take his time take as much time as you need colson whitehead to write more novels and maybe he does want to ex- you know explore other forms of pop culture other media like i would mm-hmm. be interested in that as well i think he he is such an interesting mind but to think about the historical context of this he's one of only Four people to have won the Pulitzer yeah. for fiction twice. The other three are Booth Tarkington, William Faulkner, and John Updike. And so, of those three, like, I don't hear anybody talk about Booth Tarkington ever. I don't know anything about Booth Tarkington. You, the but man Faulkner, that
0: magnificent Ambersons isn't on your top of your TBR. I mean, it's super fine, not. Whatever. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, uh, but Faulkner and Updike, those names are still. You know, very present in how we talk about the canon. Been a while since those guys had books out Um, that I think that we're seeing Whitehead take his place as a novelist we're going to be talking about for generations Mm -hmm. and thinking about. The Underground Railroad, right? Like, to think about the Underground Railroad and the Nickel Boys as still maybe the beginning of someone's career. Like these are pinnacle kinds of works. Yeah. Um, there are writers who never reach these heights. Like if this is the best it gets for Colson Whitehead, that's a huge accomplishment, but that it feels like there's still room for so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just really incredible. And selfishly as a reader, I want that. Also, I want to see what else he's going to do.
0: It's interesting that you, I mean, it's to look at the, the antecedents for double wins the Updike, the Faulkner, the Ambersons, and then even in the, the tradition out of which, you know, we and others place Whitehead too of black literature in America, mm-hmm. the Ellisons, the Morrisons. What's, what stands out to me is Colson Whitehead's heterogeneity of form within. Like, we both love Morrison. But you kind of knew the the air, like what the air would feel like in a Morrison novel.
2: (laughs) Yeah, you you kind of know know what the Marilyn Robinson is going to feel like.
0: You know, you know what the air is going to feel like in an Updike novel. You know what the air is going to feel like in a Faulkner novel, and I'll and I'll go out on and I'll I'll I'll, um you know do my thing of like I know what the air feels like in a Booth Tarkington novel. Mm. Whereas with Whitehead, the only constant is a certain amount of surprise and delight of not knowing what the book is going to be about. You walk through a zone one's like this zombie novel. The intuition is, I mean, you only need to look at the first novel and be like, it's an alternate history <laughs> where elevator repair <laughs> is like a religion slash cult slash <laughs> spiritual practice. Yeah. Like that's where we started. Right. And then John Henry Days is this mythological Sort of call and response between the actual John Henry and these PR flacks. Ajax Hides the Hurt is about this town that basically sells its name of the town to be like they're all so strange and different. Like each on their own are not that strange, I guess. Like they're different and interesting, but they're not like bizarre. It's not like willing naked, it's not like reading Naked Lunch or something like that. But taken together, the spectrum is kind of mesmerizingly dizzying, which I can't really say about too many authors, frankly. I really can't.
2: And I think that, you know, I think that for most people, and so that extends to artists and writers, groundlessness can be scary. And Colson Whitehead finds a way to make groundlessness appealing and delightful. And even when it's scary, you're like really glad to be there and to not know Mm. what the ground is that you're standing on because it's so interesting. Yeah. And yep. and he's just so masterful. Like I think as a reader I always feel like I'm in great hands with him that mm-hmm. if I don't know what's happening and I don't know where we're going, it's okay because like we're going to get somewhere that's right. worth being. Um right. and the process will have been fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that's just it, it's it takes so much it just takes so much guts. Like there's real literary courage to tell these kinds of stories and to mm-hmm. be as varied and unpredictable and like and weird just straight up weird like the concept behind the intuitionist is is weird Uh, and a lot of his work goes in that direction but it's not performatively weird it's like this is weird you know this is weird but you're about to believe it (laughs) there's a certain
0: you could you could there's a version of him of these books and they exist out there where weirdness is thought of as an end in itself like there's like the ironical like the the caricature of the ironical hipster of like 15 years ago of just like liking weird stuff because it's weird right right Mm -hmm. that's not what he does the the strangeness is a reframing and disorientation that has the arrow points somewhere Um, it has a goal and a purpose outside of a kind of nihilistic reveling in meaninglessness right which is sort of the 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 ironical take of liking things that are bad, for example. Mm. Um, and, and one reason a reading pathway for Whitehead is so hard is there's no direction necessarily. There's no, you know, if you, it's it's more like, what do you like? Do you like a detective story? Do you right. like zombie novels? Do you like historical fiction? Do you like, you know, memoirs or coming of age? You know, that's Sag Harbor. Um, do you like satire? and i could point you to any of those books but there's no sequence where this leads to this leads to this there is it's a mountain range without having a peak at this point maybe yeah. underground railroad um but maybe not maybe 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 not at this point. yeah
2: i also think it doesn't matter what you no. like with him like this is not a case of okay you He's not one of those writers where it's like, okay, well, you like speculative fiction, so you should start with Zone One. Like, maybe you should start with Zone One, but that shouldn't be the only Colson Whitehead you read. And by the time you're done with it, you won't want it to be. Mm. It's like, all right, you can do this. What else do you have? And he'll. You, I feel like he's one of those writers that makes readers willing to go wherever he wants to go.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like if your favorite restaurant, like the best restaurant you've ever been to was like different every time you went in. Like it had different cuisine. Like you knew it was gonna be good. And even if you didn't think you're gonna like the thing, mm-hmm. you trusted the, the chef and the staff um, and the line cooks to do something great. You know, if you like, I mean, frankly, this is one of those things I say. If you like literary fiction, and let's, let's make no mistake, that's the, the meta genre he's within, right? Like yes, if there's a genre so. to all of them, it's literary fiction that happened, that pushes boundaries to some. But if you like it at all, there's something to be found in almost. I think you'll find at least something in in every book, and I have my favorites and ones I didn't like as well. But all of them were worth were worth unwrapping and spending some time. in. no major quote unquote mistakes. Um, the stakes are different in various different ones, but um, a, a, an amazing achievement. And I'm I'm glad I'm always glad to get the chance to talk about Whitehead, <laughs> as whereas we're sort of experiencing here, um, and so excited to see. Um, what's next. But I also think it would be all right if you never won another Pulitzer. He's got two, <laughs> you know, like, you know, we could spread it around a little bit. There's, we've talked about that in, in these things mm-hmm. with literary fiction before. I guess that takes me, um, let's do another sponsor break and we'll, we'll come back and talk about the rest of fiction and run through the other ones as well.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies. And that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. Today's episode is brought to you by World Editions, publisher of Salamalik by Khaled al-Asmael. In this unflinching story about Arab masculinity and homoeroticism, Farat, a Syrian in his early 20s, visits Sibki Park in Damascus, one of the city's most popular cruising areas. There he learns about the Hammams, secret meeting places for gay men located throughout the old city. So inside these public baths, the air is thick with the scent of bay laurel soap, and naked men hide in the steam. Ferd faces sometimes violent disapproval from all levels of society, regime, religion, the man in the street, you name it. And yet he manages to find the love he's been seeking just before his world collapses and he's forced to flee. Find out more about Salamlik by Khaled Alasmail, translated from the Arabic by Larry Price at indiepubs.com slash products slash salamlik. That's S-E-L-A-M-L-I-K. And thanks again to World Editions, publisher of Salamlik by Khaled al for sponsoring this episode.
0: Um I haven't talked about Ben Learner on the show. I don't think you and I've ever talked on Ben Learner. And the reason no. for this is is I think I'm too. Cl- I-, I love Ben Lerner. I- going back to um, leaving at ch- Choas Station from Coffee House Press, and I think in 2011. Look, I'm going to describe to you Ben Lerner himself and his literary career, and you'll understand why I can't talk about it objectively. He graduated from Topeka High. I'm from Lawrence, Kansas, so Topeka High is about 15 mm-hmm. miles from where I grew up. In 1997, he's one year okay. younger than I am. <laughs> Uh, his his mom is a psychiatrist was a psychiatrist maybe still practicing at Menninger's. My dad is a doctor in Lawrence. Both of us like he's much more accomplished than I am. I'm like not even putting myself in the same category. Except I was I was the same kind of kid growing up in the same kind of place um, as Ben Lerner was, and that's what he writes about. He writes about being a nerdy. Kid in the '90s in Kansas with vaguely literary aspirations. I can't talk about this, Rebecca. I don't know what to say to someone about this. Like, is it written for me? Like, I, like, and, and it's in its experimental and it's heartfelt, and I, I love all the books. I think the Topeka School is a wonder. I'm not sure I would recommend it to anybody else because it's like recommending my own clothes to someone else. It's like now these are my clothes. I don't know what to tell you. I th- I don't know if that makes sense, but it's great. It's it, it's amazing. So I don't even know what to say I think except these are sometimes- I'm so glad to see it recognized here. And it's he's been recognized in other places. But this I think he won a MacArthur in twenty fifteen. But like a Pulitzer Prize finalist I guess makes me say, Oh, other people like the clothes that I like. And I know people and I know in literary circles people have been on the Ben Lerner train like for a while now. But this is the first one that's really I guess the 29 he won the LA Book Times prize for also for Topeka school. And he he was a poet for a while. He lives in Brooklyn. I mean, come on, man. Like I don't know what else to say <laughs> you're, about are You um, feel in a
2: little scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I think the books are wonderful. You know, um I think the Topeka school is the best of the three major so it's uh, leaving a Chowa station 1014 and Topeka School. And they're all kind of about people like Ben Lerner, but also not. So they're auto-fiction to, to into that sense. Stylistically, it's very interesting, experimental. He's interested in language. He's interested in ideas. I think the closest analog I can think of that people might know um, is maybe Don DeLillo's White Noise, where there's it's realistic, but also thinking about ideas. And there's this there's a big idea. And the big idea in Topeka School is this idea of the spread, um, whereas in White Noise, it was sort of the cloud. Um, and what Lerner is writing about in the 90s is tr- is kind of what DeLillo is writing about in the 80s for their own times. Like Pesto's quiche of the 80s is like, as they said in When <laughs> Harry Met Sally, like the spread is the cloud of the 90s um, yeah. for Ben Lerner. Um, I think it's really fantastic. I'd be fascinated for other people out there who have read this um, that didn't grow up basically in the novels to see what their experience was like maybe you don't need it I, I'd be fascinated maybe maybe this could be one of our big books of the year I'd be yeah I would love to talk about it I don't oh, want that would to be inflict fun. it on anybody else but maybe this gives me enough authorization to say all right finals for the Pulitzer it ain't just sort of my particular <laughs> well, brand of whiskey we're talking about here
2: I think it's not. Um, Liberty was floating on our uh, contributor slack yesterday before the announcement that she thought we were going to hear Ben Lerner's name mentioned. Oh, Liberty, I missed
0: that.
2: Yeah. yeah. And she grew up you know, in Maine.
0: <laughs> right.
2: Pretty A pretty different experience from yours in, in many ways and from Ben Lerner's in many ways. Um, I'm interested. I think that what you're talking about is actually really important because it, it for me, hangs a lantern on that, like, we're never objective about the ways that we interact with art, but we sometimes think that we are until you bump into something that's so close that you have Mm -hmm. to acknowledge the subjectivity of it. I want to read this. It sounds great. I like the 90s, and I was a it's Yeah,
0: it's it's fascinating. So Lerner himself, just to do some biography, because maybe people haven't heard the name before, he was the national forensics champion um, at Topeka High, and he writes about and concurrently, there was this is really nerdy, but in forensics and debate, there was sort of a development in the tactics for forensics and debate that grew up. I I, I guess I think it was in the nineties too. I trust the book more than me. I'm maybe getting this confused of kind of a an asymmetric warfare where you know in debate and forensics as as because there's extemporaneous speaking and you're extemporaneous speaking and you're trying to make points and win arguments. But there became sort of an asymmetric warfare where it became a successful tactic just to sort of like overwhelm someone with volume of words and non sequitur so they really couldn't respond Mm -hmm. it's sort of strange and that (laughs) becomes a metaphor for abundance and uh (laughs) excess and meaninglessness in the tapita school um because it doesn't mean anything and yet it wins oh and i feel (laughs) like i feel like those of us who and it's not about the internet which is also interesting like my next when we talk about whitehead what's next for him I really want Lerner to turn to the internet because we haven't mm. we haven't gotten there yet, and I'd be fascinating to know how he would take on the internet because it's this '90s. It's a '90s moment that feels very real to me because I lived it, but it's also before the internet, which almost takes this kernel of an idea and, and it goes supernova. Or does he think it does something else? I'd love to read it. What it is but this idea of the spread? I find so compelling. Um, and applicable in a lot of different ways, and I haven't seen him theorized in quite this way, but I've been out of academia mm-hmm. for a while. Um, also, the other thing to say that, I don't know if I put a point on it, is he started out as a poet, a multi-award winning uh-huh. poet, and so the language is, you know, razor sharp, <laughs> barbs in your eyeballs kind of stuff, um, which almost to me makes the DeLillo comparison unfair to Learner because I think he's a much more inventive stylist um, than DeLillo, DeLillo ever was. So there's that piece of it as well.
2: <laughs> Man, I've gone back and forth like 10 times in the last eight minutes about whether I should read this book or not because I had a boyfriend in 1999 who had that exact approach to forensics and life. Uh-oh. Just right. over Maybe too you. soon. Maybe With too all the soon. things. Like, I don't know, I've had 20 years. <laughs> yeah. Well, and
0: I, I don't know. It's also interesting. Again, we've talked about this on the show, the de a long overdue decentering of of white male experience, um, which is overdue and is part of the conversation, but shouldn't be you know um, the only conversation. But again, it's my time. But I find his approach of of centering his own experience without centering his worldview mm-hmm. to be an interesting navigation of a, a responsive mode to maybe an appropriate way <laughs> rather than an inappropriate way of mm-hmm. understanding your experience as being meaningful without being, um, the experience or the prime, the primary one. And that specificity, I think lends itself to it. Um, you know, he didn't grow up on the East. I mean, I want, I think there's something too, that he didn't grow up going to an elite boarding school uh, right. outside of New York or something like that. I mean, from my own experiences too, there's some, there is a, a sort of marginalization of growing up in Kansas of someone who wants to do something around books. Like, you felt to be at the margin already. Um, You're you're an outsider looking in, in that regard, even if, you know, your own identity was (laughs) triumphant and wildly privileged, but even that experience of, like, trying to figure out how to engage um, with the idea of art itself is very much at stake in the Topeka School. Like, the the protagonist's sort of biggest fear is he, he has this desire to be transformed by experiencing art and yet can't and like his biggest fear is that he 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 does not have that thing that would let Mm. art be transcendent to him
2: oh man ouch um so
0: it's really great i I think it's really great i'd be curious to hear i haven't read too much about it from other people because i didn't want to hear from
2: yeah just hold uh, on to it it's okay let it be
0: yeah Yeah, let it be so uh, you can hear my uh (laughs) You can hear maybe why I haven't talked about it too much at this at this point, but I'm going to use the moment now to express my great admiration um, for Ben Learner. Yeah, work. and
2: also um, like you can decide that we never talk about it again. Maybe this is it, and you just need to hold Ben Learner. Yeah, first, it's fine. And that's okay. Well,
0: look, I'm going to be okay. Don't worry about me. <laughs> um, it's it's uh, it's if anyone else is interested in, in doing it, uh, in talking about it some other time. I mean, it's a cycle. I. Again, it's hard to say, and I haven't read the first one for so long that I would like to read them all again at one piece, but I think if we ever wanted to talk about them, maybe talking about them all three at the same time would mm. be interesting, because mm-hmm. I think they do form um, a through line that's uh, that's worth thinking. But anyway, take that out there, folks listening, for what you will. Um you know, I, I'm not sure what else to say about it. I'm not sure what to say about the Dutch house. I, I've kind of used my enthusiasm up on the yeah, first two. People I, like it. It seemed to sell well. Is there anything? What else do we want to say I don't about it? I Dutch
2: haven't house? read it yet. Like I'm yeah. reading, you know, I've been reading the descriptions and checking back on reviews and like it's a multi-generational story mm. about a family and wealth and like this sounds on paper like something that... I should love. Um, I wonder if I used my coin for that type of story. Yes, that's the most. A
0: great, I feel the same. Like
2: the most fun we ever had by Claire Lombardo, which was a great big novel about a complicated family that I absolutely adored last year. Like five hundred some odd pages, and I really enjoyed every one of them. Mm. I, I don't know. I just have a hard time getting my feathers ruffled about Ann Patchett. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I'd be happy to be talked out of that. Um, if listeners want to make a case here. I think the show, the future show that I'm putting together in my mind is like runners up for the big awards. And I could talk myself into like reading. Mm. I'm going to read the Ben Lerner. It's like I could read the Ben Lerner and something from the national book mm-hmm. award shortlist that didn't win. And you know, one of the booker yeah. ones or something, maybe. Um, I don't the honestly and this is now we're just like in idiosyncratic complaints but th- this is our podcast the title right. not the title the title and the cover really put me off the Ann Patchett cuz I would have guessed that it was set mm. in like the 1800s based on this like old painting and it's called yeah. the dutch house like what ha- what is this about what are these people I don't know mm.
0: Mm. Fair yeah I, it I didn't, think you're expressing I mean, it a little bit differently but I'm I'm in the same vein of Not for me. I mean, I'm not opposed to it. Like if I was in a book group and they decided to read it, I wouldn't throw up any roadblocks, but I wouldn't advocate, you know, I'm not going to choose it over some other things on my list at this point. I guess what I'm trying to say.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think I don't have any objection to it. I'm needing right now for fiction to like kind of grab me by the throat if I'm going to pay Mm -hmm. attention to fiction. Um, and I don't, That's maybe grab me by the throat might even be strong, but like I really need fiction with teeth and my Mm. experience of Ann Patchett is not that toothy.
0: No, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I mean, especially comparing it to something like the Nickel Boys or Topeka School. My sense of my my sense of Patchett is a certain edgelessness now and both Topeka Mm. School and Nickel Boys have an edge that if I'm looking for that kind of reading experience, that's what I want. Yeah.
2: You know, I think that's I'm, a good if I'm
0: looking for art reading, I want a little edge. If I'm mm-hmm. not looking for art reading, I want something else. Um right. and at Patchett it falls into sort of uh, a, a demilitarized zone between <laughs> those two. Uh, for me, right.
2: Now. Yeah, I've never been sad about an Anne patchett book that no, I've read, but no, but I've no never no. like woken up and been like the thing I need to do today is read Anne Patchet.
0: Yeah. Um which is probably one reason she sells very well. That's okay. <laughs> No, I'm right, serious. Right. No, no
2: shade. I think you're right.
0: <laughs> um, where do you want to go for, I mean, we should go nonfiction. Do we have anything to say about the other letters awards rather than running through them? I don't have much of a, I haven't read any of them. Um, I've heard of a few of them. I don't know that any, the yeah, you know, in nonfiction tends not to be something I'll pick up uh I'll I'll go pick up because of so I don't know where do you what do you want to go
2: the you know actually the introduction to the live stream I think and before as they got into the mm. journalism awards for me was the most interesting part of it because it. usually my experience of the Pulitzers is like the day after they're awarded I go to the Pulitzer website and read about who the winners are and I scroll past all of the reporting to see fiction nonfiction and maybe poetry and the watching the intro like the sort of introductory speech to it and the text of that discussion brought back to me like really how much these awards are about journalism and like the arts awards are just sort of like tacked on but they you know specifically talked about I can't remember the woman's name I should have written it down who's the chair of the Pulitzer's um in difficult these are direct quotes in difficult times the pulitzers may be more important than ever journalism never stops and that they are specifically this year according awarding journalism in the context like the societal context of coordinated efforts to undermine our free press like pulitzer came out with some guns blazing in that talk um giving you know, shining a specific light onto not just the work that they were awarding but i think giving us some insight into why they chose the finalists and the winners that they chose for the kinds of work that were done. Um, And it's sort of ranging, but lots of stuff related to overuse and abuse of authority, lots of um, stuff relating to exposing predatory issues in you know giant industries um extreme temperatures and climate science um, reporting was done and seeing all of that it was like wow this is like there 2020 2019 2020 have been big Mm
1: -hmm. there are
2: a lot of things going on in the world and journalists are doing a ton of work um really important big work and that brought it home to me um Also, just interestingly, there were screenshots at the very beginning of the Zoom calls where the uh, finalists were being deliberated. Hmm. And some of those were dated like May 1st and 2nd. And it was just interesting to me that Hmm. up until like the 2nd of May, two days before these were awarded, they were still having calls and deliberating it. I don't know anything about any of the nonfiction winners um, or the... The poetry category, no. but I did note a lovely phrase that I will share with you mm. about the, the winning book was um, Benjamin Moser's book about Susan Sontag. And it was described as capturing her volatile enthusiasms, which
0: that's nice. Is- Right? That's nice. I had that book on my someday. maybe. I like a literary biography. So I, I realized I lied. Or I lied. I was just mistaken. I did read one of the finalists in biography, Parisian Lives, Samuel Beckett, Simone de Beauvoir, Simone de Beauvoir and Me, um, by Deirdre Baer. I think as I say the name, B-A-I-R, which is her memoir of being around that cadre of mm. people. Kind of like, it's not unlike... Tonally and stylistically, it's it's much different. But in terms of subject matter, it's kind of like Movable Feast by Hemingway about being in this particular moment in Paris with literary stars and kind of, um, I mean, the, the nerdiest possible celebrity, you know, gossipy kind of stuff. Like, you know, this is what it would like to be in this particular moment in time. Um, I thought it was really fun and fun. I thought it was really interesting and good and uh, a boots on the ground account there again not one i'd recommend to most people you know unless you like literary history in this kind of book um but it was really good um the Sontag. so the other finalist for biography was our man richard holbrook in the end of the american century there's usually a big political biography that i Mm -hmm. couldn't find less interesting like i'll read a new yorker (laughs) profile of someone but i'm not gonna spend 600 pages reading about bureaucrats from the 70s just not gonna happen um History, Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America by W. Caleb McDaniel. Um, about reparations, but told through the story of one particular woman who survived a kidnapping and re-enslavement and eventually went on to sue the people that kidnapped her. Um, I'm sure that sounds really interesting as well. Also, Race for Profit was a finalist. How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Homeownership. And then The End of Myth, From Frontier to the Border Wall and the Mind of America was a finalist for History. Um, That got moved to be a co-winner in general nonfiction, interestingly, Mm. by the board. The Pulitzer, I don't know what goes on because the board moves things around and the jury moves things around. And it's always unclear to me who's happy with what was given out. But in general nonfiction, the end of the myth was one of the winners. And the other one was The Undying, which has one of the grimmer subtitles you're ever going to hear. Here it is. The Undying, colon, Pain, Vulnerability, Mortality... Medicine, Art, Time, Dreams, Data, Exhaustion, (laughs) Cancer, and Care by Ann Boyer. (laughs) You Um, know, actually, the
2: way that the the chairwoman spoke about it when she was announcing this award, though, I was like, oh, I'm going to read that.
0: (laughs) Really? Because here's the description. An elegant and unforgettable narrative about the brutality of illness and the capitalism of cancer care in America. I'm sure a very important work. Sounds like a
2: tough hang. It does, but you know, the Emperor of All Maladies also sounds like a tough hang and is wonderful. Yeah, but sure,
0: I'm not going to try to yuck <laughs> anybody's yum. I'm saying for me, <laughs> I already read The Emperor of All Maladies. Uh, well. I, I, you know, you know, I'm, I just just for me, just for me, Finalist Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, and Reimagining Life um, by Louie, Louise Aronson, and Solitary by Albert Woodfox. With Leslie George, the general nonfiction and history categories, let's just say it, kind of a bummer. They're usually bummer mm-hmm. topics. Important works. But you know, not a lot of stories of triumph and fun or something like that, like solitary confinement, getting old, cancer care, border walls. Um, journalism is serious and important work, and these are serious, important books. Yeah, fun it is like is not, I don't think fun go. is on <laughs> yeah. the list of things they're looking yeah. for, which is fine. Yeah. That's fine. It is
2: fine. fine. In 10 years, one of these is going to be about the COVID pandemic.
0: Oh, I mean, fascinating to see how none of this stuff is about it. Of course it's not, because it's from 2019. But how many years of COVID-related stories are we going to get? I mean, we're going to get decades of stories, mm-hmm. right? Like, that's just what's going to happen. Uh, in the poetry, um, The Tradition by Jericho Brown. A collection of masterful lyrics that combine delicacy with historical urgency and their loving evocation of bodies, vulnerable, hostility, and violence. Finalists there, Dunce by um, Mary Ruffel, R-U-E-F-L-E. And only as the day is long, new and selected poems by Dorian Laux, Laux, L-A-U-X. Mm -hmm. From Norton, Uh, drama, boy, now we're really getting out of my wheelhouse. (laughs) A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson. And one and finalists were Heroes of the Fourth Turning by William Arbery and Soft Power by David Henry Huang and Janine Tesori. Always fascinating to see. uh, The drama one is always interesting just to read the description because I have a hard time imagining dramas. This one's described as a metafictional musical that tracks the creative process of an artist transforming issues of identity, race, and sexuality that once pushed him to the margins of the cultural mainstream. Into a meditation on universal human feats and insecurities. A metafictional musical. Um, there we go. What else do you want to say? Anything? We did our piece. <laughs> We talked about the yeah. things we know knew something about and didn't say things about things we didn't.
2: Yeah. They right also out. did a special citation for Ida oh, B. Wells yes. for, um, I'll just read the quote, for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. The citation comes with a bequest by the Pulitzer Prize board of at least $50,000 in support of her mission and recipients will be announced at a later Date, Mm. Um, so that was cool. I haven't seen the Pulitzer do something like that. I don't know if it has in the past, um, but really nice to see that recognition of Mm. Ida B. Wells's work, and also tied back into my thinking of like, right, this is the Pulitzer is grounded in like what's happening in the world Um, in a meaningful and different way. I think than like the National Book Awards or. some of those other book prizes whose names I am forgetting right now. Right.
0: But well, you know, be, we can, we could go through Yeah, the that because, Book critic Circle yeah, Award. Go
2: right. That like, because it's so grounded in journalism and reporting, the kinds of books that show up on this list are, I think, often different than what we get um, on other big book of the year lists. And the Nickel Boys sort of transcends all those categories because it's not, you know, current events but deeply tied to American history and society in a mm-hmm. way that will that we'll never be able to stop talking about and we shouldn't be um that was interesting to see the Ida B Wells piece come in as well that was cool
0: yeah I mean y- your point is well taken that like for journalism this is the Oscars and the Grammys and everything rolled into one I guess like the second most prestigious, Award in journalism is like a Peabody, and then name the mm, one after that mm-hmm. that everyone hears about. And, and we do get the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize and the Nobel Prize in, in letters, right? In in fiction, right. and so, so on. And so it's like it, it makes sense that this is the, you know, this is the the Ring of Honor um, among mm-hmm. Ring of Honors for, for journalism as a field. Um, that's our show. Uh, we'll be back. Well, you'll, you'll listen to us talk about news next, and then we got. I finished *Fried Green Tomatoes* the book last night. And I'm going to watch the movie tomorrow. Where are you? I'm
2: I'm about halfway through the book. I'm going to watch the movie this weekend.
0: Okay. Any initial non-spoilery thoughts about the book so far?
2: You know, fiction set in the South in the 20s that was written in the 80s is a tough hang in some ways, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also a fun read. But yeah. there are parts. There are some very cringy parts that don't age well. Um,
0: parts. Some parts have aged beautifully. Some parts have not.
2: Yeah. I would say. And then there are yeah. parts I'm finding. I don't want to spoil it all for the show. But there are parts that I'm finding imagining like if she were to write this book today, how would these characters be? Yeah. Right. Presented, yeah. and it's really interesting to think about cultural yeah. change that way.
0: Yeah. It's. It's. I, I found the reading experience um, provocative in a lot of ways. <laughs> some of, the, yeah, I think that's of them a, good and some of them not so good, but yeah, very interesting. I think interesting that's a great way to put
2: do. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been an interesting one. I'm glad that we're doing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, Rebecca, uh, we'll talk to you later. You can email okay. us at podcast at bookriot.com. You can also find show notes for this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at slash listen. If you happen to, still a little short on recommendation requests, to be honest with you give us shoot them to us at uh at Um we'll get to them as we can. Thanks Rebecca. Talk to you, Thank you. um uh, after I stop gushing to myself in the mirror about uh, Ben Lerner here in a minute. I've got a few more minutes <laughs> I got to get out about that.
2: You know, we got to roll around in the good things we can find right now.
0: <laughs> well said.